everyone, and welcome to Tales from the Trenches. I am Stephen Collins. I'm the CEO of Matter. Matter is a healthcare technology incubator and innovation hub built on a belief that collaboration between entrepreneurs and industry leaders is the best way to develop healthcare solutions. Today's program is part of our Tales from the Trenches series, which features accomplished healthcare entrepreneurs sharing their learnings and stories and the key takeaways from their journeys. And our guest today is Sheila Mikhail, founder and CEO of AskBio. Sheila is a fascinating entrepreneur who has started and sold biotech companies to Baxter and Pfizer and Bayer. Uh, she started her own law firm and we'll see if you agree at the end, but has arguably done as much or more to advance the promise of gene therapy than anyone other than her AskBio co-founders. Uh, I think you'll hear three themes coming through in this conversation that are particularly fascinating. One is, how do you build a biotech company with no money? Uh, two, how do you build a biotech company if you're a woman and a minority? Uh, and three, how do you build a company when you can't adopt an existing business model? Um, if you have questions you'd like to ask Sheila, please use the chat function of Zoom, and I will weave them into the conversation as appropriate. And if you opted into the post-event virtual networking, you'll receive an email shortly from Kay Nietzkaj with a separate Zoom link. At the conclusion of the main program, please use that link to join us for the uh, networking. Uh, thanks everyone for joining us. Thank you particularly Sheila uh, for spending your time with us. Uh, so let's get started. You um, started your career as a consultant. You went to law school, you clerked for an appellate court judge. You worked for a prestigious uh, law firm. None of that is really the typical pedigree we see when we are envisioning or talking to biotech entrepreneurs. Um, so I wanna start first with, um, how did you become an entrepreneur? Which I believe <laughs> your first foray was starting your own law firm. Yeah, well, thank you. First of all, and foremost, thank you, Stephen, for inviting me. Uh, I, I welcome uh, very much the opportunity to tell you a few stories from my experiences. And I think what Matter does is really incredible. Uh, entrepreneurship is a very lonely and sometimes scary road. And having uh, groups like Matter provide support is really just invaluable. Uh, so uh, how did I become an entrepreneur? Well, it was an unintended uh, journey. I actually worked for um, another law firm. Uh, I was trained up at Ropes and Gray in Boston and my uh, ex-husband got recruited to uh, Duke. And so I came to North Carolina and worked for a local law firm where I uh, faced some hardships. And uh, in particular, uh, a little bit of discrimination. Uh, I was told that uh, as a woman of color um, that perhaps clients would not feel comfortable getting complex business advice from me and so I was asked to sort of stay in the background and support other male colleagues who then would interface with clients. And of course that was incredibly uh, hurtful and demoralizing. Um, and I sort of you know, had the opportunity to go back to my old law firm and commute uh, long distance. Uh, but I decided, I said, well, if these folks have done this and established a successful law practice in North Carolina, then maybe I should just give it a try. Uh, and so I sort of uh, just embarked naively. I didn't know all of the obstacles associated with starting a law firm, but decided just to go on my own and 
see what would happen. And uh, it actually was a very successful venture. I was fortunate enough to have clients, uh, big pharmaceutical uh, companies like Bayer and GSK and Gilead, Aventus. So I built a great practice. Uh, and it also gave me the opportunity uh, to work with uh, smaller companies that were spinning out of uh, local universities. Uh, and it's, it just so happened that in the first week when I started my law practice, uh, I was a guest lecturer. I was asked to stand in at the last minute as a guest lecturer at the University of North Carolina in a class that was being taught by Ted Zoller called Launching the Company. And the purpose of the course was to uh, instruct professors and in how to start up companies that uh, basically developed and commercialized their technologies. Uh, sorry, I'm turning off the heater in the background. And so uh, when I presented at that course, uh, there was a professor, Dr. Richard Jude Samalski, who was sitting in the audience. And after I gave my little spiel, an hour long session on how to work with the tech transfer office and how to start a C corporation, he came up to me and said, could you help me? Said, I have technology uh, in the uh, gene therapy area. And he mentioned to me that uh, gene therapy was not in vogue at the time and that it would be very difficult uh, to get funding because there was a lot of skepticism about whether or not it was safe. But he said, if we're successful, we will change the world. And that was almost 20 years ago. And we have uh, been working together ever since. And so that was sort of the background of how I started in gene therapy, uh, which was, I think, pretty, uh, a pretty surprising way of getting into biotech. And um, it's been a successful venture uh, between the two of us ever since. Um, surprising indeed. I think every um, interesting career has these sort of serendipitous moments that occur and they they help, uh, they change the trajectory of whoever's on the journey. And in this case, um, you just described a couple of them. One, an uh, unfortunate situation, to say the least. Uh, um, but I love that your response was, well, screw it, I'm going to go start my own law firm. <laughs> Um, which is well, fantastic. Interestingly, interestingly, like, I don't know, 10 years after I started my own law practice, they called me up and asked me if I would come back and run their life sciences practice. <laughs> and I was out in Arizona at the time. So I actually, I think I probably said the smartest and wittiest thing I've ever said in my life. I said, well, it's really hot out here. So I don't think hell has quite frozen over yet. <laughs> Anyway, I'm sure, you know, I think a lot of people of my generation have faced similar obstacles. Unfortunately, I don't think it's unique to me. I think the yeah. difference is I had the opportunity to take something that was really disadvantageous and sort of turn it on its head and uh, get a lot of opportunities from it. And how did you, um, in that early, uh, you made a decision to focus on life sciences, which you didn't have a life sciences background per se. It, so. You, and I think that was a strategic decision on your part. Yeah, so I, uh, I guess I benefited a little bit from my days uh, at the University of Chicago getting an MBA. And I remembered uh, Porter's different strategies of approaching a market. And one of them was, well, uh, niche, right? Being a niche player. So I knew that as a small law firm, it would be very difficult to compete with larger law firms. So I decided to niche in a particular area. 
And at the time, uh, there weren't uh, any law firms focusing on the life sciences area as a specialty. And in fact, we were able to get the domain name Life Sciences Law because it was such a unique concept. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and it worked out well because uh, if you specialize, then it's, you know, the area of law that you have to have an understanding uh, is more narrow. And so we were able to be really expert at uh, the needs of life sciences companies, which really focuses a lot on intellectual property and licensing issues and collaboration agreements. And so, uh, yeah, it was just an effective way of competing and positioning relative to other law firms. Yeah, I love that. Um, I, I love that you incorporated Porter's uh, lessons into starting your law firm. Um, and then you had another serendipitous moment, which you described, which is the Jude was Jude Smolsky, Professor Smolsky was in your, this first class. And um, as I understand it, so you had like just started a law firm and he basically asked you to start a company with him. And your response was, sure. Why, but, <laughs> why start one company when you can start two? Well, even though if you meet Jude, it wouldn't be so surprising. He's very persuasive and incredibly likable uh, individual. Uh, he, he's just an amazing uh, individual who gives you a big vision. And, you know, he wanted to work on diseases like Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, uh, which if you know any children who, boys who have that disease, it's incredibly devastating. Uh, boys typically lose the ability to walk. Uh, in their uh, you know early teens and often face a death sentence by their you know mid twenties, and so you know when he was talking to me about what he wanted to achieve and he was incredibly passionate and just so giving right and painted this world where you could treat all these genetic diseases with a one time treatment and you would use a non pathogenic virus. I mean, first of all, I was really intrigued, right? Because it really changed the way that I had thought up to that point about medicine. Uh, you know, um, I also think I was very sympathetic because I had a daughter who had a lot of health issues. And so I could relate to uh, being a parent with a child, right? And if you have a child with health issues, I mean, it, it, you would, you know, all the pain that your child suffers, you would take that in a second so that you could take it away uh, from from your children. And so I could really empathize with the need and at least my daughter's health issues were not, you know, life-threatening the way that their issues were an absolute, you know, there's no treatments available. So I was very sympathetic to the cause. I was intrigued by the science. And then Jude is such a likable person, it's hard to turn away from, from him, right? And so it was all the magic combinations and uh, clearly, right, almost 20 years later, I'm still involved with the company and working with Jude. So it was a magical combination from the beginning. How did, um, so I, I understand, you know, you described why you said yes to him. What, why do you think that he asked you to? It was the last resort, there was nobody <laughs> You know, most people, when they take on the CEO role, they want to get paid and gene therapy. This was right after the death of Chelsea Gelsinger in the late 1999. And so there was no funding going into the sector. I would go to different investor conferences and investors would like run away from me like I had the plague. <laughs> so, uh, you know, gene therapy today, there's such a renaissance in the space and there's so much money going into the sector. 
but for a really long time, and in fact, Aspire was 17 years after the company was started when we got our first funding, uh, you know, there was no funding available. It was such a, you know, moonshot and people were really concerned that it was unsafe, that you would uh, kill, right, patients. And unfortunately, the event that shut down the field was the uh, death of a young boy, Jesse Gelsinger, who was involved in a human clinical trial at the University of Penn at the end of 1999, but it was a different virus. It was an adenovirus, and unfortunately, the virus we use is adeno-associated virus. They're completely different viruses, but they share the same, one part of the same name. Uh, they operate differently. Ours is non-pathogenic and uh, adenoviruses are known to integrate in the chromosome and can cause cancer and other, you know, bad things. And so it was just unfortunate that, you know, there was a carryover uh, from the death of Jesse Gelsinger into all these other areas. And it took a long time to advance the science on really like a shoestring budget so that we could prove that, um, that you know, the science had validity. And now today there are approved products to treat blindness. Uh, and also there's a product uh, for spinal muscular atrophy, SMA. Uh, SMA is a death sentence for children who have it. Uh, and our technology is used in both. And people who take uh, the SMA therapeutic basically live a pretty healthy uh, life relative right, to not being treated. So, you know, it's a transformative technology with really uh, incredible results for people suffering from genetic disease, but it took us a long time to get over the barriers. Yeah, and just for everyone who's not familiar, it's that AAV technology where Jude was really a pioneer in that. He was the founder of the field. He uh, was the first to clone AV for therapeutic purposes. And so, and he also uh, developed the manufacturing process that uh, most people in the industry use uh, that uh, it was revolutionary. Uh, and so he, he really is widely known as the father of the field. Not a bad thing to be known for. So... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's also a really genuinely nice guy, which is also a good thing to be known for. So you start this company with him. Um, you've got your law firm. This, you've started this thing. Um, you're going to investor conferences and people are running away from you like you have you know, <laughs> yeah. COVID, I guess, or Ebola or whatever. Um, um, so how did, and you said you, uh, I think mentioned you, you, it was 17 years before you, you got an injection of capital into the company. So, um, you know, how did you fund the company? It's it's not like it's not like the type of company where you can uh, sort of grow it based on incremental revenues. It's it's nor is it the kind of company where you can you know sit in your basement at night and code something and get something out there. Like I'm at a gene therapy company with <laughs> novel technology and 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 20 years ago nonetheless i mean so wh what happened how did talk walk me through the 17 years it of, was really uh, hard to grow a company without money <laughs> if you're if you're asking for the easy answer like the recipe to do that in an easy way i have to say there's no easy path so uh, what we did was we uh, made Aspio holding company. We knew that we had to protect uh, the IP. And today we have over 850 patents. 
We also knew that often uh, venture capitalists, if they funded a company, they only gave that technology one shot on goal, right, to sort of prove itself. And if it wasn't successful, then often the technology would just be put on the shelf. And so we did not want that to happen. And so, uh, again, our mindset was, well, there's not a lot of funding available. We don't want to take, and in fact, I think we had one term sheet for like a million dollar investment on a million pre. So right out the door, we were losing control of the company. So we decided that what we would do is uh, have Aspio be a holding company and then spin out the technology to uh, these companies that we created. Uh, and uh, then only allow a slice of the technology to go to the spin-out companies and take dilution at the, at the NUCO level. And so, for example, we created a company called Chatham Therapeutics that used our platform for the development of treatments for hemophilia. Uh, and uh, it basically uh, was just a license, exclusive license to use the technology just for hemophilia A and B. Uh, we then got SBIR grants um, to advance the technology into uh, clinical trials and we had some collaboration agreement uh, funding and that got sold uh, to Baxter. Um, unfortunately, Baxter became Baxalta, became Takeda and then became Shire and the program didn't advance quite as, as well as we would have liked. But the money that we got from selling uh, the company, we then brought back to Aspio and then started another company uh, called Bamboo. And Bamboo used our technology to develop a treatment for Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. Pfizer bought that in 2016, and now that drug is in pivotal clinical trials. So hopefully soon, uh, Duchenne's boys will have a viable treatment. Uh, today, there's no treatment available for uh, Duchenne's uh, that is life-sustaining. So then again, we took the money back to the holding company. So that was one way that we created uh, revenues back to the holding company. In 2017, we finally decided that the funding environment was more attractive. So that's when we converted Aspio from an IP holding company into an operating company. And I was employee number one. Today, uh, the company is you know, uh, over 400 employees. Uh, and it's expected to be over a thousand employees in the next two years. So uh, yeah, it's been a tremendous uh, rate of growth. Uh, we have four uh, programs in the clinic, soon to be a fifth program. So it's uh, incredible rate of acceleration, uh, but uh, you know, that's, that was basically how we, we dealt with it. We also did some other things, uh, creative funding strategies. Uh, we wrote a lot of grants, which were important and raised uh, you know, a lot of money through SBIRs and uh, academic uh, grants and collaborations. Uh, we uh, took our manufacturing process, which we uh, developed on an SBIR grant, and we decided to uh, make revenues from it. So we built uh, a CDMO business called Biogen. Uh, we use our uh, state-of-the-art manufacturing uh, capabilities. It's the Pro10 system uh, to manufacture not only our products, but many of our competitors. And we generate significant revenues with pretty hefty profit margins uh, from that business. Uh, we also, uh, surprisingly, uh, for some of our programs, the parents themselves of uh, sick children uh, did a lot of the heavy lifting. Uh, they made donations uh, to advance the programs. And some of them even did things as incredible as this may sound, 
bake sales and relay for life uh, fundraising events. Um, you know, it was really a grassroots effort from parents that wanted their children uh, to get treated. And we saw this, uh, we got a lot of parent support in the Duchenne's community. And then for a neurological disease called uh, gothic giant axon neuropathy. And so it really was uh, very humble <laughs> ways of raising money. But, uh, you know, in particular, the parents were really committed, right? Because they had children with, uh, you know, devastating disease and only a specified period of time that we could treat them. The disease got too advanced, then there was uh, no viability to our uh, gene therapy treatments to actually stop the disease progression. And so uh, they were racing against time and they were highly motivated. Funding a biotech company through bake sales. <laughs> something yeah. I ever thought I'd be talking about. Um, so if you, so you started Chatham, I think it was 2012? We sold it, yeah, we started around 2012 and we sold it in 2014. So there were 10, 12, 13 years, something like that before the Chatham um, sort of spin out and, and separate capitalization of that as a sub entity. Um, so mostly it was grant funding and yeah. when did you create the, the CDMO? Yeah, it was mostly grant funding. And remember too, during that time, it was very difficult to advance therapeutics because the regulators were concerned. And so we actually, uh, during that time period, took a therapeutic for Duchenne's muscular dystrophy into the clinic. Uh, it, you know, again, there were so many bars to advance a therapeutic, a gene therapy uh, therapeutic. We had to go before a special committee called uh, the RAC, and it really did sound like you were going to be put out in the RAC, right? Scrutinized very thoroughly, but it was recombinant advisory committee, uh, and that was in addition to the FDA review of your uh, IND. And so there was just all these hurdles that slowed you down. And in addition, um, when we went finally into the clinic, the FDA would only let us inject into a muscle. Uh, uh, the, ver the therapeutic uh, that was essentially like the, the size of a racer, very small amount of virus they would let us inject. We knew that there was no treatment, right, benefit that was going to be derived from that. The FDA just wanted to make sure essentially that um, safety, right, that this was not going to create a massive, uh, you know, yeah. system shutdown in the patients. And so, you know, we really didn't, it was almost like building a bridge to nowhere other than it appeased the regulator's concern that, you know, adeno-associated viruses were going to have the same kind of uh, detrimental effect of adenoviruses. Uh, and clearly there was no, uh, there was no detrimental effect. Uh, we were able to then move forward years later with the systematic delivery of our therapeutic but it was just a different time. And, you know, the regulators were being very cautious and time just moved very slowly. Uh, so, you know, it, it was not necessarily so much even the funding, it was a regulatory constraints, science constraints. We had to scale up manufacturing, right? There were just a lot of obstacles that got worked out during that decade. Um, yeah. And, then now you look at it and things, I think there are like 400 different AV programs today in the clinic for a wide variety of different diseases, but it was a slow beginning. Was the FDA's, did the FDA's 
sort of um, reticence or hesitancy extend into the preclinical work or was there, did it make the preclinical models more complicated or the work that you needed to do there more complex or more expensive yeah. as well? Yeah, and again, I think for uh, all of us, right, we were going into the unknown and the FDA was being cautious because there had been a big red flag and they wanted to make sure, especially going into children, that uh, all of the precautions were taken. And so I don't want to sound critical of the FDA in any way, because in actuality, they were very supportive in helping us think mm -hmm. about how to design our therapeutics and viral loads and, you know, manufacturing processes and I would say in the early days, right, we hadn't had as an industry, uh, all of our manufacturing uh, as fine tuned as today. So the product that we were making, uh, you know, a decade ago was nothing like the purity uh, of the product that we had today. And I think the FDA, they were tolerant within reason, but many of these programs were coming from academic centers. They weren't coming from big pharma with all of the sophistication. These were academics who were saying, let me take my research project and advance it in the clinic. Uh, and that's how the field got developed. And so the FDA really had to work with academics to get them to understand all of the systems and regulatory requirements that are necessary, right, to protect uh, patients. So in no way do I want to sound harsh uh, to the FDA. It was just necessary growing pains, considering this was almost like coming out of, you know, small academic centers it wasn't big pharma pushing through something, right? It was very unsophisticated drug developers <laughs> saying, I wanna get my, my products into uh, the clinic. And so uh, the field has matured a lot over the last 20 years. So with um, Chatham, how, did, how were you able to get uh, capital at that point to no, create another company? Oh, you weren't. Yeah, weren't able to. So we literally leveraged a $5 million SBIR to, to get the technology into the clinic uh, and then got some good clinical data in our Factor 9 program with two patients and Baxter bought it uh, at that point in time. And it was, you know, it was a pretty attractive deal. Uh, I'm not sure if I can disclose, but it was uh, significant enough that, you know, we were then able to put some money back into Asbio and capitalize it and uh, put more resources into our Duchenne's program. Uh, when we uh, spun out Bamboo in 2016, we thought we were gonna be, we thought we caught the market right and there was enough support from the venture community uh, that we were gonna get Bamboo funded. And I, I was really disappointed because I had uh, dog data out uh, nine years showing that we could correct uh, the Duchenne's model of uh, golden retrievers. And uh, yet we, we couldn't get funding. Uh, but luckily, um, you know, I'm a good bluffer and I convinced uh, Pfizer that, 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 you know, they wanted to acquire the program before uh, I did a deal with the venture capitalists. And so they bought the program and, uh, you know, good thing for patients, they're now advancing it, like I said, through pivotal trials. And I think that was probably the right thing for uh, the drug because, um, you know, Bamboo is a company of 40 patients and uh, the manufacturing burden for uh, the Shen's drug, because you have to deliver virus to every single muscle, was a uh, very high bar. Uh, and so, you know, Pfizer took our manufacturing process, tweaked it, and was able to get uh, it to be even more efficient. And also, there were some complications in the clinic that Pfizer, with, you know, all of the tools and sophistication they have available to them, 
they were able to design around. And so the drug is moving forward. So it was, uh, it was bittersweet because we really wanted to be able to get the drug ourselves over the finish line. But again, I think when you go into this business, you ultimately do it because you care about patients. And uh, we wanted to make sure that the drug had the best chance of success uh, because these patients are waiting desperately. You So, you know, at Matter, we're always helping companies raise money and think about investors and, and their strategy and the kinds of investors they want to work with. And I know with Bamboo, you had some challenges with um, a potential investor, um, <laughs> which are um, particularly special. So I just, why don't you describe that process and what, what happened? Well, it's just clear that fundraising is not for the weak of heart, right? This can be a very uh, difficult uh, experience. Uh, in my particular experience in trying to raise uh, money for bamboo, I always compared it to being in a roller derby. I don't know if you remember those that show years ago, sure. right? Where people going round and round uh, the roller rink and they bump into each other and they hit each other <laughs> to try and knock them off their skates. So it's like being in a roller derby where people have baseball bats and nobody's wearing a helmet. It's a pretty rough game. <laughs> it really is. Um, so we had gotten a term sheet from uh, one of the big investors uh, in the gene therapy space, like, you know, March of, I'm trying to think what, uh, 20, uh, 2015. Uh, and it was very attractive. And, you know, they said, oh, but before we finalize the deal, please go out and build a syndicate, go visit all our friends, which we did. Uh, so we talked to, you know, a good half dozen, uh, probably more like a dozen, but uh, they uh, wanted us to talk with this group and build a syndicate of about a dozen or so uh, different investors. So we did that and everybody was all enthusiastic, but time is going by, we're spending money, right? And the money that we had was uh, the proceeds from uh, Chatham uh, and of course, you know, some proceeds from just uh, Shen's parents uh, who wanted to see the therapeutic uh, go forward. Um, they uh, knew that we had a significant payment due. Uh, we were buying a Vector Core from the University of North Carolina. Vector Core is just a production facility uh, and that payment a very significant payment was due on January 4th. And so um, in the fall, uh, you know, they said, well, you know, it looks like you built the syndicate, that's great, but valuations have changed. And so now we're gonna cut your pre-money valuation in half, right? And we were like, oh, this is not good. So we decided that what we would do instead, since we talked with all these venture funds is we would go ahead and uh, have them submit term sheets. So everybody's been in our you know, diligence room doing diligence on us, our data room doing diligence on us. And we're expecting uh, you know, the middle of December to get all these term sheets. Well, we start getting these calls one by one from these different uh, investors saying they weren't going to submit a term sheet. And we couldn't understand because they were all very enthusiastic. And then all of a sudden they're saying they're not submitting term sheets. So finally we heard from one of them that the investor that asked us to create the syndicate told all of these uh, investors that if they gave us a term sheet, they would be excluded, punished, right? Excluded from their deals for a time period or something like that. And so nobody wanted to go crosshairs with this particular uh, investor. And so nobody was going to submit a term sheet. 
um, which was a real problem. And so I had uh, started uh, discussions with Pfizer at the time and basically really pushed them, right, which is a very difficult time between Christmas and New Year's and said, well, you know, you need to get me a term sheet right away or else I'm going to close the, the round with the investors. And so they came back with a term sheet. So it's bluffing, right? And the investor hasn't totally pulled out. So it's not lying, but it's, <laughs> it's really positioning things the best you can. But um, again, I'm coming up on this January 4th deadline. And I think the investor thought I would just fold, right? And get, get take any valuations they want. Luckily, I had a very good friend who I never asked for anything, but he has significant resources. And in a plea of desperation, I called him up and said I needed a cash infusion in the company of several million dollars, which to my surprise, he wired it overnight. Uh, and we did the paperwork later and he made a very nice return. But, you know, he was uh, very he has a child with a genetic defect. So I think he could relate and he did not want the Duchenne's drug. Uh, to be put on the shelf or something bad to happen. And I think he just didn't think it was a very fair situation. So he was coming to my help. And uh, we were able to buy the vector core, close on that, close on uh, the uh, deal with uh, Pfizer. And then this investor wanted me to meet with them at JP Morgan, right? And they set up an appointment. They don't know that all this has happened in the background. And it was so funny because I basically told him, right? It's like I made the appointment and then two hours before I canceled <laughs> because we had already done a deal. But it was so gratifying because you knew what was coming. They were just going to cram us down because they thought I was totally out of money on the verge of bankruptcy. But yet I had sold the company. And so I think, you know, the key lesson is always have alternatives because a deal is not done until a deal is absolutely done. And you just, you gotta like, you can't let no people know you're sweating, right? <laughs> it's really the key. But that was, that was a, you know, it made me really gun shy of investors. Uh, and I've been, you know, very sort of anxious because it, they're not, I mean, there's our investors that we got uh, subsequently, TPG and Vita, uh, which we took an investment from them uh, in 2018 were incredible. So not all investors are, you know, wanting to cram you down, get the best valuation, you know, especially as founders, right? It, I think it can be tough. Uh, there are fair uh, investors who want to be collaborative and equitable. And we were very fortunate that we found that with TPG uh, and Vita. But uh, yeah, we had some rough and, you know, some very rough times. And I think the worst thing is, you know, I get really upset and emotional about it because um, you know, people are waiting for these drugs, right? Their kids are dying. And so you just are sort of like, you know, I don't know, I maybe was very judgmental, but it's like, why would you take away an opportunity for people, right, to have a chance to save their kids? I mean, it's not all about dollars and cents. At the end of the day, I think you are in this space because you fundamentally want to have a big impact, right, on people's lives. And, um, yeah, I probably in some ways, I think that's the thing that drives me, keeps me going 20 years, despite all the obstacles. But it's also the thing sometimes where it gets me uh, very frustrated because when other people just see this as an opportunity to maximize, you know, ROIs, you're just sort of like, really, it, it's, you know, it's, I can't understand how you just wake up every day saying I'm going to get another dollar today. It, it seems like you have to have a bigger motive. 
And I think you know the work that uh, that we did in Bamboo and the work we do in Aspio is really the truest of purposes, right? We we are advancing scientific innovation so that we can bring transformative treatments to patients with devastating disease, which today have no treatment options. So anyway, that was a very frustrating time, and to this day, I still get really mad about it because. You know, why should these people with those value sets control which technologies get advanced and which ones don't? And which, you know, uh, which CEOs, right, get advanced and don't? And what the profile of that CEO should look like? Should it be a man or a woman? Should it be black or white? I mean, it's, they have a lot of control at their disposal. And it just seems like you would hope that the people that have all of that uh, power would be motivated by something more than, you know, short-term maximization of profits. <laughs> That's all. We, uh, when we started Matter, we called it Matter because we wanted to work with people who are passionate about doing something that matters. And so I, I can uh, uh, relate quite nicely to, um, you know, being driven by a passion to help uh, patients and your frustration comes through uh, uh, very clearly in that, uh, with those investors. Yeah, and I just want to say, I mean, you know, especially like children that suffer from genetic disease, it's always been so uh, amazing to me and also incredibly inspiring how brave they are. I, I you know, I got to know quite a few of the Shen's patients uh, over the years. And for many years, although it disintegrated at one point where I just couldn't even, you know, keep it any longer, I had a note from a little boy who, a Deschens boy who's since passed. And he said to me very early, he gave him this note and it said like, I know this is gonna be very difficult and you probably won't have a treatment in time for me, but I'll be looking down from heaven and I know you'll help other boys behind me, right? They're just so ah, it means, it gives me the chills. Yeah, but it's amazing. Like a lot of the children that I've met with genetic diseases, they know they're facing life sentences, but they're incredibly brave and they're magnanimous. And the parents, right, uh, our investor, uh, one of our investors uh, who invested primarily because he had a Deschens boy, his boy was way too uh, old by the time he approached us and he knew that the therapeutic wouldn't work. But he said, Sheila, you know, in my situation, I've been to India, I've had magic stones put over uh, my son. I went to Mexico, we drank magical potions. We've been to other parts of the world and had mud baths, right? I, he said, I've done everything because I'm so desperate and I don't want other parents to be in the same place I am. I want other people to have a better outcome. So, you know, people are so incredibly um, giving, right? And so unselfish that it's, you know, it's easy to be motivated, right? When you have people like that, it's like, oh, this is a worthwhile cause. This is something you want to devote your life to. And um, you wake up with the spirit of I've got to I've got to be successful somehow I have to overcome these obstacles because people are counting on it. And uh, while bamboo wasn't able to get finance, we got the drug into the hands of a group that is advancing it and hopefully again we'll bring it you know to patients so they can benefit. So I by the way that you're um, describing um, everything, you know, take me, take us back to the first five to seven years of the company when you, I don't think have uh, drugs that are, you know, they're certainly not in clinic. They're probably not even really close to that. Um, you're, 
you're sort of in this like, wow, this technology could really change the world, but nobody, you know, it's a, the FDA's got a lot of questions. The investors aren't really interested. I've got a law firm that's doing really well. And like, <laughs> how much, you know, like how much of your time were you spending on Ask Bio at that point? And what kept you going in those early years when there wasn't a lot of that, you know, you probably weren't in, interacting with the Duchenne's um, people at that point. Yeah, and in fact, I would say um, it was interesting. It was a really hard time. So it was a slow time because the science was still evolving. It wasn't baked, right? And the few attempts that people had to get it into the clinic, uh, they failed, right? So there are other groups working on similar technologies. They went in the clinic and they failed miserably. So it was even worse. It wasn't mm -hmm. that, you know, and, and so the hurdles kept getting uh, the hurdles kept getting higher because the technology was improving, the, the FDA was concerned, uh, there's a death, and then the a few attempts that uh, similar technologies, uh, when they win the clinic, they failed miserably and investors lost money. So it was, it was even worse than you could imagine. And I think uh, at that point in time, uh, I was working two full-time jobs. I was working my law firm job and I was working in the company. So it was two full-time jobs. The benefit was I was an entrepreneur in each. So I had a lot of flexibility. I think it's much worse uh, trying to start a company if you work for somebody you know, 40 hours a week and then you're trying to do something on the side. I think that's really hard, but I had flexibility to be able to work both things in, if that makes sense. I just worked really long hours. Um, I just kept doing it. I honestly believe because you know, my co-founder and I, we had this vision uh, and we were committed to it. And we did have in the early days, uh, several Duchenne's pa uh, parents uh, and other parents, right? Who kept rooting on, uh, who kept rooting us on. And we knew the stories of their children. So it was almost like you couldn't quit because if you quit, you were going to basically tell them, right? That you gave up on their children. It became very personal. <laughs> so, it wasn't so simple, right? Just to say, well, I'm tired of this. I haven't made any money. I'm gonna go on to something else. You felt this moral obligation. Uh, and again, these were really incredible people who were so selfless, right? Uh, unselfish, they, uh, they were focused on the people that came behind them. And so, I don't know, it really became more of a mission, right? Than a career or a job. It just became like sort of, I was meant to do this, uh, the hardships, uh, we will get over them. It's just a matter of, you know, sort of just keep chipping away. And so, uh, yeah. And, you know, and in the early days, everything was a win, right? If you got anything at all, if you got a little collaboration agreement with a company and they paid you, you know, $250,000, it was a big celebration. And I remember we had gotten a, uh, a collaboration agreement with a big pharmaceutical company and they paid us a million up front and it was like a major to do <laughs> you know, it was like oh, cloud nine so you know it was just one of those things you didn't you didn't have high expectations and you just kept working at it because you know if you could just get through the barrier you knew that the other side had so many incredible things to offer uh patience and um and again we're talking about you know potentially cures right Gene therapy provides a one-time treatment 
to correct the underlying uh, genetic defect. So if you have a genetic defect, that means you have a gene that's not working properly. We use a non-pathogenic virus to put a good gene into the body to essentially overcome uh, the you know, defective gene and do the work that it couldn't do. And so it truly is, I think, almost a revolution in the way we treat patients, right? Today, we really are just treating symptoms. We're not going to the molecular level and fixing the disease. So this whole concept of, you know, if you have uh, something wrong, we can correct it. And AsBios is uh, one of the few companies who's taken those principles in genetic disease, and in which there are 9,000 different rare diseases that have a genetic uh, you know, defect associated with them. And we're now going after pathway diseases. So today we're in the clinic in Parkinson's and we're seeing some incredible results. And of course, Parkinson's is much more difficult to treat because there could be lots of different genes and different factors contributing to the disease. But you know, we went into the clinic and we're getting some very promising results using gene therapy. We're in the clinic for heart failure. So we basically said, yes, we know we can treat monogenetic diseases and we're continuing to uh, tackle many of them. Uh, but we also want to treat you know, diseases that affect the population more generally. And again, not a pill that you take, you know, or an injection that you take many times a week. Uh, we're saying a one-time treatment, right? That basically resolves the problem forever in an ideal world. Um, talk a little bit about what that one shot cure versus the standard business model of a therapeutic. <laughs> is more of an ongoing management of a chronic condition or a, it's just, it's different. It's not, it's there, there hadn't been a, a template for this. And so you've got regulatory challenges, you've got financing challenges, uh, but then how did you, how have the conversations gone with the payers in, in terms of yeah. reimbursing something like this where there really wasn't a template? So Stephen, that's a really good question. In fact, you know, you talk about those first 10 years where it seems like we were just in stasis, right? Not able to get as many things done as we would have liked to. Uh, during that time, we actually had a, negotiated a deal with a pharmaceutical company uh, and, um, you know, it was going to be a big deal. But when we sat down with the business development person uh, and they were trying to figure out the appropriate value, right, of the deal, uh, he kept asking me, how, how often does the patient get treated? And I said, once. And he goes, oh, once a day? And I go, no, once. Once a week? No, once. He goes, once a month? And I go, no, it's a one-time treatment. It basically, it, uh, hopefully, right, with one-time treatment, it's a cure. The patient won't have to be retreated. And he came back to me and he said, well, we can't work that into our model because our model is expecting a recurring revenue stream. And so the deal cratered, unfortunately. We had buy-in from the scientists. We had buy-in from you know, the strategic component of the company, uh, but we couldn't get the business case because uh, nobody could understand how the payers would pay for this, right? A one-time treatment. And I think that was the other obstacle, unfortunately, for the advancement of gene therapy in the early days. Um, people wanted those recurring revenue streams, right? It was almost like, a, I hate to say it, but almost like a, an addict, right? Uh, they wanted you to keep taking the pills or the injections and a one-time treatment, 
uh, there was a concern that you know payers and insurance companies wouldn't pay high enough of a price to offset uh, the uh, you know the revenue streams from a more recurring treatment. And in fact, uh, you know the product that I just mentioned that we couldn't get the deal for uh, for would have cannibalized that company's ongoing. Right, they had a product that you injected in patients. Uh, several times a week, and we would have displaced that. And so that wasn't in their interest to do that. And so I think it was only after, uh, and we have Dr. Kathy High, who's part of our company now. She was the co-founder of Spark. When she was at Spark, she got the first uh, FDA-approved uh, drug on the market for uh, in the U.S. for um, gene, AV gene therapies like Sterna for inherited blindness. And she overcame a lot of these obstacles uh, and had to meet with the payers uh, and, you know, the insurance companies. And uh, then after that, the drug for SMA by uh, Vexus, now Novartis, uh, got approved. These drugs have high prices associated with them. And sometimes I really don't like that because I want our drugs, right, to go to as many patients as necessary. So I want them to be affordable and accessible. And I spend a lot of time trying to drive down the cost of goods and thinking about different formulations so they can be shipped all over the world uh, without worrying about uh, cold chain supply, uh, cold uh, chain, uh, cold storage supply issues. There you go. Uh, and so, Anyway, uh, but it's necessary because without those uh, higher prices, I don't think we would see as much money and innovation in the sector. Uh, today, you know, you see a lot of money going into it because there is a path for payers and insurance companies to reimburse, right, the price of drug, uh, the price of gene therapy drugs uh, at a level that uh, is a you know, appropriate or adequate uh, from a per investor's perspective, return on investment made. So yeah, it, that all had to be worked out. And then it took a while. It took a while <laughs> for everything to sort of settle. Um, how do you think being a Hispanic woman has affected your, um, your career since you, you talked about the one, you know, particularly egregious, um, like very overt moment with the law firm, um, but what? How do you think it's affected your career since? And and do you have any advice for uh, women or minorities who are um, either in or aspiring to be in leadership uh, positions in life sciences? Yeah, I mean, I look at my company. I think it's extremely beneficial because my uh, company looks like you know, almost the United Nations. We have people from every place around the world, right? And I love it. It's a very diverse uh, group of people from representing lots of different nationalities, uh, religions, uh, sexual orientations, right? It's just, it's wonderful. I love it. And I embrace all, every aspect of that, right? Diversity uh, is a really big issue uh, here at Asbio. And, you know, I look at the senior uh, management ranks uh, we're over, you know, 57%, uh, close to 60% women in leadership positions. And when you look at the company overall, uh, in uh, Europe, uh, our manufacturing facility, most people can't believe this. Uh, we have, we're approaching 280 people there. We're growing, uh, basically tripling uh, per year our growth, 75% women. Right, so when I add those into the statistics, they're even more uh, advantageous uh, to women. So we, uh, you know, we don't, I think we don't have, I hope, 
a lot of issues that maybe companies that are less uh, diverse have. And I think that there are huge uh, strategic advantages to being a diverse company and celebrating, right, that diversity. If nothing else, we have a lot of fun. We celebrate everything here. <laughs> and I just, I think it just makes the environment employee engagement much higher. Um, but I think in general, look, if you just look at the number of uh, companies that are venture backed, that are run by women CEOs, uh, you know, it's not a very high number. I think I saw it's like less, it's like five to 7%. It's not high at all. And then when you look at uh, companies where uh, the CEO comes from an underrepresented background, it's less than 3%. So the statistics are not in your favor. <laughs> and I think, you know, my personal experience was it's hard uh, sometimes to get the credibility. A lot of times my statements, I would say something and then they would often be attributed to like a male counterpart. And I saw that happen a lot. Um, but I think, you know, we just have to be persistent as a group and we have to demonstrate our capabilities and those of us who get the opportunity, right, have to bring others along. It's just that simple. So I try to, you know, help other women entrepreneurs, other um, people of color through, um, uh, you know, basically mentorship. I've been involved in a lot of formal programs, informal programs, sponsoring uh, diversity uh, initiatives, uh, both in the company and more broadly. And so there's a burden on the very few lucky ones of us who have gotten opportunities, right? And um, we just have to make sure we provide other opportunities to the extent we can, right, to others similarly situated. But it's not easy. And my word of advice would be, you got to be really tough, really tough. And you can't care what people think about you. Because a lot of times when you're successful, and you're a woman, or you're uh, an underrepresented individual, I think um, people always tend to, you know, they tend to think, oh, maybe you didn't work as hard, or you got some breaks, or there's a lot of crap that's thrown at you, right. Uh, and women always, if you are tough and, and you know, sort of very focused. I think sometimes you get a lot of sexist uh, ideas thrown at you too. But, you know, the, you know, yes, you actually do work 10 times harder. I'm looking at somebody's job, 10 times harder and longer and smarter and everything else. It, it's not easy. And I wish I could say it's an even playing field, but I don't, I don't think it is today. And hopefully, you know, for our children, uh, it will be different, but I think today for those of us, right, who are trying to be uh, trailblazers, it's hard, um, but we're trying to make it easier for the people coming behind. So on a lighter note, um, who does the naming of your technologies um, and your companies? You've got Bamboo and Chatham and AskBio is after the god of um, medicine. And, and most interestingly, I thought, one of your technologies is called like doggy bone thing. <laughs> like, who does that? It looks like a doggy bone. <laughs> it's a, it's sort of like, it's always been uh, Jude and me at various points in time coming up with things. And I think there's no, uh, there's never been any pattern or any logic. It's just sort of what we're thinking about the time. Bamboo, for example, was named because his grandson saw a kangaroo on TV on a cartoon. He kept saying, bamboo, bamboo. And Jude goes, 
that sounds like a good name. And then he comes back to me with this, right? And I have to figure out a logic behind it. So I go, well, bamboo is like a weed, right? It grows fast and it's really resilient. <laughs> so, you know, it makes sense, right? And it's good luck. So now, unfortunately, when uh, Pfizer uh, bought us, they called it Project uh, Pam uh, Panda. And you know, panda bears eat bamboo, right? So we were like, oh, this might not be a good thing. <laughs> But otherwise, Asclepius is, uh, so the company's official name is Asclepius Biopharmaceuticals. I could never get the hat over the E because it's Greek and you have to put this little hat thing on. I couldn't figure out how to do that on my computer. So we shortened it to Ask Bio. But Asclepius, of course, is uh, the Greek uh, god of medicine that cures incurable diseases. So it was very fitting. Jude, you know, flips from being very, you know, sort of flippant about things uh, when his grandson named Bamboo uh, to very thoughtful when he named Asclepius. And other times, I, I really don't know. We'll just be thinking about something and we'll come up with a name. Not always a lot of logic to it. Um, well, Sheila, thank you so much for sharing your journey with us, with our community. Um, it is truly remarkable. Uh, and really, um, there's so much that I know you must be so proud of uh, that you've accomplished over the last 20 years in advancing a field of gene therapy that, as you so uh, kind of eloquently described, holds um, really just uh, tremendous potential for addressing some of the most intractable uh, diseases that we face as a species. Um, thank you to all of the rest of you for uh, spending part of your day with us. Um, we have our final program as matter of the year on Thursday as part of our Healthcare 2040 series. Uh, we'll have leaders from Brain Lab, Hillrom, and Parkview Health talking about um, innovation in operating rooms. Um, in, uh, register for that at matter.health events. I hope to see you there. Um, I hope, uh, Sheila, that you and everyone else uh, who's listening uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank uh, you, Stephen, so much for letting me be part of this. And you know, happy holidays to everybody, right? And a joyous new year. Thanks, everyone.